Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Other Now by Murray Leinster, first published in Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, March 1951. And I'm uh, I'm a defender of Murray Leinster, even though I think a lot of people don't, I've seen them say it, uh, they don't think his prose style is that great. Um, I can't say he's my favorite prose stylist, but I, there's something about his stories that I do like. And I assume that you like this one, or you wouldn't have recommended that we discuss it. Exactly. I, I like it in a couple of ways. Um, what did you think of it? Because you agreed to uh, to do it as well. I certainly did. I liked it. I, I like the fact that the story reveals itself to be a deeper... approach to a normal human experience than at first seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think a, uh, a quick reading, which Leinster's very workmanlike prose, uh, it flows quite nicely, as, as students like to say, uh, when you criticize their work for not being particularly deep, there's a, well, the language flows, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, his language flows very nicely. Uh, by the way, I should say that's only some students, not all students by any means. But but those who feel defensive and haven't really thought deeply about their work may be satisfied that the language just flows. And here's how the story begins. It was self-evident nonsense. If Jimmy Patterson had told anybody but Haynes, calm men in white jackets would have taken him away for psychiatric treatment, which undoubtedly would have been effective. He'd have been restored to sanity and common sense, and he'd probably have died of it. So to anyone who liked Jimmy and Jane, it is good that things worked out as they did. The facts are patently impossible, but they are satisfying. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a kind of prose that works very nicely. And on the first reading of the story, it seems as if this is a setup for us to have a sense of suspense about what's going to happen. Uh, Some impossibility is about to be recounted. It is something that we don't want to reject because if we like Jimmy and Jane, um, we're going to want them to be able to profit by this strange, impossible event, whatever it may be. And so this appears to be a story about Jimmy and Jane. The story about Jimmy and Jane is, uh, I'll just make a quick summary, uh, mm-hmm. one in which uh, three months prior to the beginning of the narrative present, there had been an automobile accident in which Jimmy and Jane were in a car behind a steel hauler that had steel uh, beams sticking out beyond the back of the uh, truck bed. The night was rainy, the uh, truck skidded, the driver hit the brakes, that forced Jimmy to hit his brakes, but perhaps because there was an extra drop of water or a pebble on the road, 
Um, he couldn't stop fast enough. A beam went through the windshield and killed Jane. Jane and Jimmy were devoted soulmates. What happens in the narrative present is that Jimmy comes home one day from work, mourning his absent wife as usual, opens the door, and then as he goes to walk through it into his apartment, um, he stubs his foot against the closed door. So that surprises him. He takes out his key and opens the door again and walks in. Uh, There is a lot of repetition in the story. Mm -hmm. It begins to be repetition that... Jimmy thinks at first, well, you know, I I guess I just it's sort of deja vu. I didn't really realize this. But at a certain point, after enough days of this, he discovers Jane's diary on her desk, which he had not seen there previously in the last three months. When he looks in it, she has made a note on that day's date. As crazy as it seems, he responds to the note. And they begin corresponding with each other. Uh, Haynes uh, is a lawyer, but reluctantly a lawyer. He likes following odd hobbies, and they include strange speculations, which include the notion of a fourth dimension in which you can find alternative nows, hence the title, The Other Now. And after all sorts of explanations for this are debunked, including... uh, figuring out that the so-called trick photography that Jimmy had arranged to capture these events really couldn't be trick photography. It can't be that good, at least not in 1951 when the story was published. Uh, Haynes suggests that, okay, here's this crazy idea. Of course, it cannot be. It's an impossibility that there's an other now that maybe in the other now, when you skidded, you got killed. And Jane lived because in Jane's diary, she is mourning Jimmy's death. But then, of course, there's the wonderful possibility that there's some third now in which they are both alive, uh, that the beam went between the two of them. So the story goes on and things get closer. Uh, The barrier becomes thinner. And uh, in the course of trying to prove the truth of his experience to Haynes, Jimmy tells Haynes that Jane had told him via the diary that on the previous night, Haynes had been in a near fatal car accident and Jane revealed the name of the driver whom Haynes did not know. In fact, Haynes hadn't told anyone about the accident. In fact, Haynes follows up and finds out that the information that Jimmy passed along from Jane is valid. When he calls Jimmy to talk with him desperately about this Jimmy won't talk to him because that's the night he thinks the barrier is going to thin out entirely between the two nows and indeed when the police break into Jimmy's entirely sealed home a locked room mystery um, Mm -hmm. they find he is gone and eventually they uh, just assume since nobody has ever found they drag the river and so on uh, that he left town But, of course, there is this other possibility (laughs) that, you know, although it's patently impossible, uh, it's a very satisfying impossibility. And the end of the story uh, is Haynes realizing that he if he were to tell the story, uh, 
that men in common and white coats would come and take him away. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't want to tell the story either. Uh, the penultimate paragraph says it was a rather satisfying impossibility. Bringing up that word from the that phrase from the first paragraph. And then Haynes car had been repaired. He could easily have driven out to the cemetery, meaning to see if there were two graves, Jimmy and Jane, or no graves, not Jimmy or Jane. For some reason, he never did. And that's the last line of the story. So if you like, a, an easy reading of the story has this rather smooth prose giving us a setup then telling us the story of Jimmy and Jane. And we don't have proof that they got together, but by golly, it seems like they might have. And then at the end, uh, Haynes doesn't do anything that might disprove the story of Jimmy and Jane. So I like the story because it's a nice story. It's told well. It offers this interesting hope. And it speculates a little bit about the notion of the probabilistic nature of the future all good philosophical issues. And we really do like Jimmy and Jane because they are so longing for each other. But I think, and this is why I think this is a story worth not only admiring, but thinking about comparatively deeply, that on a close reading or a second reading, we realize that the story is not ultimately about Jimmy and Jane. The story is about Haynes. Hmm. Because... Jimmy, being so desperately in love with his, his ex-wife, with his, 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 his widow, his deceased wife, um, we keep being asked, it occurs about at least twice in the story, um, to figure out what the explanation would be for getting across from one now to the other. I mean, that's exactly how the story begins. There must have been some specific reason, I'm quoting now, but there's absolutely no clue to it. Why on that night and for this couple did these things, this thinning of the barrier between two different nows, why did that occur? And we're never told that. There's no explanation. Even Haynes gets no explanation. So the only real explanation that we get comes not logically, but narratologically. It is the love of these people for each other. It's it's actually a, a love conquers all kind of explanation. Mm-hmm. And frankly, for a lot of people, and I am one of them, a love conquers all explanation might be kind of pleasant in the moment. But it's nothing I can take away into my own life because the people I love and who love me, uh, we love each other to whatever degree that we do. Um, And if that will conquer a problem, terrific. And if it won't, it's not because there's a problem with the love. It's because love doesn't conquer all. But the ending of this story is not with Jimmy and Jane. Haynes realizes, and I'll quote it again, that this was a rather satisfying impossibility. Haynes's car from that near fatal accident had been repaired. He could easily have driven out to the cemetery for some reason he never did. Mm-hmm. 
And the question is not what's the explanation for this happening to Jimmy and Jane? What's the explanation for Haynes never driving out? And I think the explanation for that is clear on a moment's reflection. Haynes, the reluctant lawyer, the man who functions in the world logically only because that's what you need to do to survive. He would rather not find the evidence, this lawyer, he would rather not find the evidence that might give the lie to the possibility that love conquers all. In that regard, I think Haynes is like us. Instead of coming away from this story with the first level explanation, love conquers all, isn't this an interesting, fantastic possibility of getting from one now to another? We come away with something deeper, and that is human beings are willing to indulge in fantasy and turn a blind eye to reality in order to maintain hope. That's true of us, and we know it's true of us because we've just read this story rooting for Jimmy and Jane. I think this is a story about the power of fantasy and its significance in ordinary human lives, like those of the readers of the story. It's, uh, it, it has everything you said. Um, I read it a couple of times, and one of the things that I, I, I was thinking, like, why is it, is this the, is this the first story? I, I, it's so opposite of what it is also. So it's, it's, a science fiction story with almost no science ever mentioned, right? There's almost right. no idea of, you know, why this theory of worlds uh, diverging could happen, but it comes in a context. Uh, it's from 1950. Um, the author, uh, Murray Leinster, is very experienced science fiction writer, one of the most ex- experienced science fiction writers in the history of science fiction started in 1919 and by this this story's in his fifth or fourth fourth or fifth decade of writing science fiction stories he knows exactly what he's doing he's the pioneer for a lot of these um early ideas and yet he he doesn't go the way that we would expect him to with you know some scientific explanations um, and it makes me fill in all the details. So one of the things that's not mentioned in here that I was certainly thinking about was, I, I mean, one of the very first things that's, that he uses as evidence um, is not actually explicitly stated, which is um, we kind of think that there might be something to this idea beyond just what, uh, you know, Einsteinian physics might present as um, not impossible. <laughs> Um, because of things like deja vu, right? Um, when he has that trouble with the door, um, it's uh, on the second page of the text, it says this, that was all that happened to mark this night off from any other, and there is no explanation why it happened, began rather, this night instead of another. Jimmy went to bed with a taut feeling. He'd had the conviction that He'd opened the door twice, the same door, that he'd had the conviction that he'd had to close it twice. He'd heard of that feeling. What feeling? 
deja vu, right? We fill it in for him. Right. Queer, but no doubt commonplace. Absolutely. I mean, I don't have deja vu every day, but when I have it, it is very distinct and it is irreconcilable. Um, it's something very real. There's a reason we have this phrase, yet it's not easily explained um, except by sort of circuitous path of, well, you know, brains do strange things sometimes. Um, and then he slept blessedly without dreams. And then I noticed this theme of sort of reverence for the religious, which is the opposite of the explanation, right? Um, it's miracles almost like, right? So it's, he slept blessedly without dreams. And then on the next column, work was blessed because he had to think about it. <laughs> work is <laughs> blessed because he had to think about it, as in had to think about work. Then the very next page, work during the day was a godsend, right? This is not a man who is praying. This is a man who is, you know, spending his time going home, going to work, uh, smoking, a lot of smoking going on. And in fact, the observer effect, which is never mentioned in this story, the idea that you can, in quantum mechanics, that you can uh, you can actually influence the events of what will happen just by trying to observe the events, right? We don't have a, uh, a thing smaller than an electron. In order to look at things, we need to use electrons that are small. And so by throwing electrons at things, we... Uh, Unfortunately, can't, we can't look at them without changing them. And it's observation, that observation of the attention to the door, and then the further observation about the cigarettes uh, and their her brand in the ashtray, that to me is what is thinning the gap between the, the worlds. And... Of course, at the end, with Haynes not observing, choosing deliberately not to observe uh, what's going on in that in that um, graveyard, it leaves us open to say, well, yeah, it, it's an impossible story, except for the facts. <laughs> um, right. And I think that. Yeah, the workmanlike uh, or journeyman-like, more workmanlike prose, is belied by the sensitivity of uh, a master storyteller. I agree. And he he is not respected as a master storyteller as much as you know uh, a steadfast uh, storyteller who was there, a pioneer from the beginning. But when he tackles a subject. He tackles it with a sensitivity that, and maybe a subtlety that it can be, uh, you know, he is not a um, bedazzler of, of a prose stylist. He is the kind of the opposite. He's subtle, and it allows us to do a lot of work, especially if we're a little bit sensitive to, the fact that maybe there is something going on here. I I agree. Uh, I I think part of what I was trying to suggest about the the power of the rereading was that what looks like a, a simple narrative setup and a tying off the bow at the end, in fact, lets us know that there is a deeper theme here 
than the one of, let me tell you this nice story about Jimmy's wish fulfillment. Uh, that's a that's a pretty subtle writerly activity to get us to feel implicated in the story, even though it's a story that doesn't happen and can't happen, we believe, in our own world. I think there are other, to me at least, um, compelling evidences of Leinster being quite skillful. The, the things that we find that show the thinning of the barrier between Jimmy's now and Jane's now are three and only three. There are the doors. There is the writing in the diary and there are the cigarette butts. And I think about these. The doors are, by definition, liminal. They are the zone through which we change from one locale to another, from inside to outside, from now to then, from here to there. And having to go through them twice is Jimmy's problem. Right. Um, So the continual discussion of doors uh, seems quite simple. I mean, you don't go, oh, wow, it's a door as opposed to, oh, wow, he stubbed his toe. It's the door and doors come up again, but they don't seem overbearing. And yet unconsciously, that's exactly what we need to make a threshold domain. The writing is how one communicates through time. As we readers unconsciously, and some of us perhaps consciously feel, that is, Murray Leinster sat down and wrote this story, and then he sent it off somewhere, and an editor had agreed to it, and it got published, and it got put into the back of a truck, and the truck brought it to your local candy store, and then you got out of the subway, I'm speaking for myself, of course, um, and you know stopped in and picked up Galaxy on the way home. Um, and then you got to read the story. So the communication across time that writing makes possible is an experience I'm having while I'm reading the story. The only other item that actually is evidence of going from one now to the other are the cigarette butts, the cigarette butts, meaning Mm -hmm. that the reality of the cigarette has been consumed in Jane's world but the the residue of her living is still important in his world, which in fact is something that we see from the very first page in the story when we are told how much Jimmy laments waking up from a dream in which he had seen her because now he will have to realize She is not in his bed. She is not there. The residue of her life is dominating his life. And so with the cigarette butts, three simple items that Leinster chooses, he uses them repeatedly and collectively they map out a philosophical framework for justifying the acceptance of such a fantastic possibility and makes it feel real to us. I agree with you completely, Jesse. This is a master storyteller. There's a lot of little sentences here and there that, you know, they don't shine out as sparkling uh, gems, but they are simple, direct, 
communication that allows you to to see exactly what he's pioneering. I mean, the, the thing is, is I'm not sure I'm not sure that this is the very first story that does sort of the alternate worlds, but I know many novels have been written on exactly this subject, and he does it so clearly with little sentences. Uh, this is the one right after Haynes is Haynes is figuring things out. It's, here's one. There was a long pause in the Haynes's office. The world outside the windows was highly prosaic and commonplace and normal. And almost everything that happens in the story is exactly highly prosaic and commonplace and normal. The only things that happen strangely are something that could be faked, a uh, double exposure photograph, some guy smoking his wife's cigarettes and forgetting about it, which is much more reasonable explanation. And even, you know, the mysterious disappearance. Um, yeah, it's all it's all possible and commonplace and normal. And, you know, people do weird things. But then we do have this problem of when we make decisions or things happen to us, we know that we can't go back. And there's another sentence just on the same page, a little farther down. When today was in the future, there were a lot of possible todays. And think about that all the time, about how, you know, on a certain day, something will happen, we think, we hope, we plan. And then it, we get to that day, and that day's happening, and something is happening or not happening. And then that day's gone and it was in the past and it's irrevocable and cannot be uh, undone. And it's interesting to try and say, well, what could have something else have happened? And the theories of physics that we seem to think are fairly well in operation and probably are pointing to something real, whatever real means, um, point to the fact that, well, we don't know that there aren't worlds endlessly splitting off from every possible decision. And thinking about that and thinking about why that's important, Leinster has picked up on basically the real reason anyone would actually care, which is a loss at what could have been, what whether Jimmy and Jane could have been together or separated is really the only thing that Jimmy or Jane would really care about because they lived in each other's pockets, right? Right. Yeah, it's 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 powerful. You you ask the the historical question. Uh, I don't know what the first story is that deals with this uh, these forking paths, but I do know that Borges' story, The Garden of Forking Paths was uh, quite famous. It was written in 1941, and it appeared in English in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine in August 1948, which is close enough to 1951 for us to think that uh, Leinster might well have read it, especially since the translator was Anthony Boucher, who is a famous science fiction writer and editor. Um, so th there was already precedent for this, uh, but clearly there wasn't a lot of precedent for it, or we wouldn't need to have Haynes explaining the idea of alternate futures. Uh, you know, after after Wells gives us a time machine, 
nobody else ever explains how time machines might function. They just say he got on his time machine and went. Um, mm-hmm. So this this is an early story, uh, clearly, uh, but it's one that that takes an idea and makes something of its own from it. The Garden of Forking Paths is actually a political mystery. This is a story about wish fulfillment. And in that light, I would like to ask you a question, Jesse. You pointed out, interestingly, that in a subtle way, sort of the same way in which when one stubs one's toe, one might invoke the name of a deity, um, Mm -hmm. even if one doesn't believe in the deity, there are uses of words here like blessed and a godsend that seem to arise in a situation in which there is no ver- no overt religious reference mm-hmm. are you getting the sense that the story may be suggesting to us you use the word miracle that we believe in miracles just because we don't want to have to disbelieve in them that this is in some way an explanation of, if not even a critique of organized religion? I, I don't know if we could go that far, but it's certainly, I, I think that is the the thing that is so absent from magazines like Galaxy, is when they do deal with religion, um, they don't deal with it in the way that the mainstream society is, because they've got this background of, of well, what is? What? How do we know what is? Rather than we have this gospel and we believe it because it's uh, our tradition and all that. And so the subtle sort of little hints at things being blessed in God's sense are all in the spaces of hope and and basically just hope of what might be what could be rather than what is and what i like about this story is it it, the the solutions um that both men come to is that if they voice their their beliefs that they'll be not you know revered as prophets but rather they'll be locked up by calm men in white suits yeah so there is there is something fundamentally anti-romantic about the modern world and this story wants us to uh to think about something better i guess leinster thought there was always more to say <laughs>